The following is a message from Christ the King Presbyterian Church in Roanoke, Virginia. For more information about the ministry of Christ the King, please visit us at ctkroanoke.org. Well, good morning. Good morning. Welcome to Christ the King. My name is Penny, and I'm the pastor here. And uh, friends, it's great to see you. Uh, I know on this uh, Labor Day weekend, uh, many are traveling, and I know some of you are maybe just coming through town for the weekend, seeing family or friends, or um, maybe you're new to Roanoke and you're um, looking for a church. Regardless, we are glad that you are here and glad that you would be here this morning as we come to God's Word. And if you are new with us, you are joining us uh, in the midst of uh, uh, an in-between Sunday. So uh, last week we ended our sermon series for the summer in the book of Psalms. So we conclude our summer of the Psalms that we've done for a number of summers. We ended last week with the Psalms and then next week we're going to start a new sermon series looking at Jesus's kingdom parables. And so uh, because this is a weekend where uh, many people are traveling, I didn't want to start a new series. And so we're doing a little bit of a one-off this week. And we're going to look at a passage in Ecclesiastes chapter 2. So if you have a Bible, you can turn to Ecclesiastes 2. Um, You can also use the Bibles in the chairs in front of you, or you can follow along in the screens in just a moment. Ecclesiastes is a book in the Old Testament. It comes right after Psalms and Proverbs. So if if you have a bookmark still there from last week from Psalms, just skip ahead a little bit further and, and you'll eventually get to Ecclesiastes. But we're looking at Ecclesiastes because uh, this this passage is going to help us to understand a biblical uh, understanding of work. So that's what I want us to talk about this morning. That's what I want us to see, how the the Bible appropriates work. Now, I know that uh, maybe on uh, Sunday, the Lord's Day, this day of rest, and tomorrow being Labor Day, a day when hopefully many of us will rest uh, again and take a break from our work. It might seem odd for us to talk about work, but, but actually it's very appropriate that we would. Um, very appropriate that we would take this up. And Ecclesiastes takes it up. So Ecclesiastes is written by Solomon, right, the great king of Israel, the wise man of the world. It's written by Solomon, and, and he is looking at the various things in this world that people find worth and value in, where they look for and purpose. And he looks at all these things, and we have that common refrain, that famous refrain, vanity of vanities, right? All is vanity. It is like, it's like mist. You try to catch it, and you can't hold on to it. That's what it's like to find purpose or worth in the things of this world. And one of the things that he takes up is the purpose of work. He looks at our vocations, our toil. Now, when I use that word work, I'm not just speaking about the work that we are paid for. I'm not just talking about our, our uh, toil that we receive a paycheck for, because we all know that there's lots of work that we do that we don't receive any money for, right? I mean, if you're, uh, if you're a student here, regardless of your age, your classwork is work. That is your job. That is your vocation, and no one pays you to do that, right? Uh, if you are a stay-at-home parent, you are at home, and you are, you are taking care of your home, and maybe your children, if you have them, that is work, right? There is no question about it, and you don't get paid for that. And even if you have a, a vocation that gives you a paycheck, there are many things that we do 
that we don't get a paycheck for, right? There are toil, like cutting the grass or dusting the living room or cleaning the bathroom or making dinner or all these sorts of things. This is labor and work. And Ecclesiastes is taking up the question of how we are to view work, what we are to do with it. And this is important to us because as one writer put it, work has served as the great American barometer for worth and identity. And we know this, don't we? I mean, when we meet someone, we often ask them, what do you do? Right? Not where are you from, not what brought you here, not how long have you been here, not, oh, that's an interesting last name, what's that derived from? Though sometimes that happens to me, but that's usually after I've been asked, what do you do, right? Because we find value and worth and identity in our work. And so on this Labor Day weekend, let's see what the Bible has to say about work. Beginning in verse 18 of Ecclesiastes 2. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. And as we come to it, we acknowledge that there are many things that our hearts cling to. There are many things that we can give our minds attention to. And so we pray that this morning, and not just this morning, but all of our days, that we would fix our hearts and our minds, that we would fix our gaze upon you. So we need your help. Open our eyes and soften our hearts, enlighten our minds so that the work of our hands would be pleasing to you. Our God and our King, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, for four days in September of 1666, a great fire raged the city of London, England. The great fire of London, it decimated the city. Some have uh, speculated that London had roughly about 80,000 inhabitants at the time of the great fire of London. But we do know that whether there were 80,000 or more that lived there, 70,000 houses and 87 churches were destroyed in those four days of fire. The city was decimated. And in the aftermath, the city planners, the the leaders of that city, those of power and of influence, they sought to rebuild the city. And one of the people that they turned to was the great architect, Sir Christopher Wren. He was called upon to help rebuild the city. And Christopher Wren, he oversaw the redesign and the rebuilding of St. Paul's Cathedral and 55 other London churches. 
His work was so significant, so significant in the rebuilding of London that on his tomb it was inscribed, Reader, if you seek his monument, look around you. I love that. The lasting impact of his life, the good that he had done, it was evident in the things that surrounded him. It surrounded his final resting place. If you want to know the impact that he had, don't simply read what's on the tombstone. Don't look to this place where his body has been laid to rest. No, look at the buildings that surrounds this place. There, there you will see his monument. His legacy endured even beyond death. Even hundreds of years later, his legacy continues. I have a good friend who is an architect, and he loves to talk about Christopher Wren. He loves to talk about the buildings that he designed and the churches that he helped rebuild. Hundreds of years later, this man is still remembered. Now, maybe not to us. Right? Maybe we had never heard his name before. Maybe you've been to London and you've walked those streets and you had no idea that some of those buildings, some of those churches that he designed and rebuilt, that they still stand today. But regardless, his legacy continues. It continues in the beauty of the buildings and the greatness of the structures and the fact that the city has been rebuilt. His legacy continued and everyone can see it. Wouldn't you love for your work to have that sort of lasting permanence, to have that sort of legacy? I mean, wouldn't that be a beautiful thing? Not necessarily that our names would be remembered or that we would become famous, but that the things that we create, the things that we form, the things that we do, that they would, they would have uh, impact even beyond ourselves, even after we have died. I mean, that would be beautiful, wouldn't it? What a hopeful life. But the truth is, is that for most of us, the hope of a lasting legacy through our work is a fleeting desire, right? There is greater likelihood that what we do and create and form and fashion, that they will fade with our death, that they will fade with our retirement, that they will fade as we do. And so oftentimes we look at labor and toil and work and we wonder, for what end? Why do we do this? I mean, we all wonder that, don't we? Why do we do this? Are we simply working for Saturday and Sunday? Are we simply giving ourselves to toil and to work? Are we simply doing it for bigger houses or better vacation? Like, why are we doing it? Because the truth is, is that when we look at our work, we're oftentimes filled with more frustration than we are pleasure, aren't we? I mean, that's what Solomon's confronted with. When he looks at his toil, he's filled with frustration. We see it in verse 18. Our passage started, I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun. Now that word toil, it appears in the Old Testament 16 times. And 13 of those 16 times, it's in the book of Ecclesiastes. And it's most often being referred to or used in the context of the burdensomeness of work or the laboriousness of toil or the ceaselessness of our vocation. And so it becomes clear that Solomon looks at the task that he is filled with and he experiences frustration. Frustration at the future loss that is associated with his toil. Right? We heard in verses 18 through 21... I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. 
And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool? Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to, desi- to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. So you hear what he's saying. He's poured his life into a particular task, into a particular thing, into a particular work, and he has fear that those things that he has done will fall apart when left to another. So his concern isn't that he can't take the work that he has done with his hands with him when he dies. His concern is that the fruitfulness and the faithfulness in which he worked to do these things will be left to unfruitful and faithless men who will bring all his accomplishments to ruin. That there will be a future loss. Do you know this is one of the reasons why uh, many family foundations have kill dates associated with their foundations? I didn't know this, but uh, when I was in seminary, I received uh, a scholarship to go to seminary through a family foundation. There was a family that um, during Y2K, y'all remember Y2K? Like, the whole world was about to go black, right? Like, we were going to go back into the Stone Age, Y2K. Well, this family, they had created this man, Mr. Kern. He had created generators. He had invented this particular kind of generator. In fact, you've seen it. They're Generac generators. That was his business. And at Y2K, he sold it. And he made a lot of money. And so he took all that money and he created a family foundation. He gave money to seminaries and he gave money to engineering schools and he gave money to other things. And they put a kill date on it. The foundation has to spend all $250 million or however much money he has by a certain date, 20, 30, 40 years after he created it. And I remember talking to the head of the foundation because I received a scholarship. So they would talk to us and get to know us. And I remember asking him why. Like, why not extend it, right? Like, why not allow there to be blessing for, like, hundreds of years, right? 200 years afterwards. And the reason why they had this kill day is because what they found was when they looked at foundations, oftentimes by the fourth or fifth or sixth generation, sometimes even earlier, like the third, that the, gen- that the foundation has turned so greatly from the original mission and purpose that the founder of the foundation wouldn't even be able to recognize it. You see, what they saw was that in the future, there would be loss and ruin. And Solomon sees that. As he looks to the future and he looks to what might occur with the things that he he has done with his hands, he sees loss and frustration. Now, for most of us, the frustration in our labor isn't about future loss, right? I mean, most of us aren't concerned about the sixth or seventh generation of what might come of the things that we've created or made. No, our frustration comes from the present struggle of our work. And that's actually what Solomon takes up as well. Not just future loss, but present struggle. Look at verses 22 and 23. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. Y'all, does that sound like your experience? Days full of sorrow? 
work that is vexing, at times kept up at night because stress and struggle. Now, these might not be the words that we use, right? I can't remember the last time I used the word vex in a sentence. That's kind of a fun word to say, vex, vex. Maybe work that in this week. But, but regardless, we, we may not use these words, but they describe how we feel, don't they? They describe what we experience, the present struggle of our labor and toil. And the reason we feel this is because our labor and toil has been cursed. The Bible tells us why we feel this struggle, why we feel this frustration. Because in Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve rebelled against, man, rebelled against God, God brought curse upon them. And it's not just curse in regards to their morality, in regards to their desire, but it was curse upon their work. God said in chapter 3 of Genesis, Because you have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. So you hear it, instead of fruit coming from the ground, they would be fighting thorns and thistles. Instead of joy from their work, there would be sweat on their brow from their labor. Their toil would be marred with struggle and frustration. And this is how we feel, isn't it? I mean, even those of us who love our jobs, there are times where we don't love our jobs, right? Right? I know that. I know that there are some of you out there that you love what you are doing. Like you are doing exactly what God has designed you for. Because you've told me this. And, and yet there are times where you wonder, maybe I wish I was designed for something else. <laughs> right? I mean, I feel it. I, listen to me. I love my job. I love that I get to be a pastor here at Christ the King to y'all. I love, love, love what I'm doing. Okay? So that is the context. and there are times when it's easy to wonder maybe I should go farm (laughs) but then I know I would starve right (laughs) we all experience it because we all feel the frustration of our labor of our toil whether you love your job or you despise it We all feel the frustration because we all are experiencing the curse. The late nights of preparing a presentation only for it to be poorly received. The efforts to care for a client only to see them go to a rival company. The mountains of clothes that need washing and no one thanking you for it. We know sorrow and strife and frustration in our work. And so what do we do? Like, how do we respond to that? How do we appropriate our work then? Well, I think some of us, we just decide, well, you know, work doesn't mean anything. We make nothing of our work. And we resign ourselves to a kind of who cares, a throwing up of our hands of let's just get it done. Let's not worry about it. Let's let's not care about it. It's only a task. It's only a job. It's only work. That's how some of us try to appropriate it. That's how we deal with the frustration. But the truth is, is that's not how most of you deal with it. It's not how I deal with the frustration. No, we don't make work nothing. We make work everything. That's how we deal with it. 
We elevate our toil and our labor to unhealthy places. Now, it sounds counterintuitive, but that's what we do. We seek to remedy the frustration, the struggle of our work by making work everything. Aaron Callan, who was the CFO of Lehman Brothers in 2007 and 2008, who was called the most powerful woman on Wall Street, After she had lost her job as the CFO at Lehman Brothers, she was reflecting back on all the years and all the work and all the toil that she had experienced to get to that position. And then what she felt when she had that position, she said this, I did not know how to value who I was versus what I did. What I did was who I was. What I did was who I was. And you see, the problem with this is that she's looking to her work to find her identity and her value and her worth. And we do this too. You know how I know we do this? Because we cannot stop. We cannot stop. We are always giving ourselves more and more and more to our work. We cannot stop. In fact, I had a conversation just the other day with a friend of mine. And I asked him, when was the last time you had a non-productive day? A day where you could look back at the end of the day where you slept in, you had a great cup of coffee, you read a book, you sat outside, you maybe talked to your spouse for a little while, you spent some time with some friends, and you look back at the end of the day and you cannot show anything for it. When was the last time? And you know what my friend did? He laughed. And so do I. In fact, the first service, someone told me that the thought of that is anxiety-producing. So what does that say about us? It says, it says that we are looking to our work to give us value and worth and identity. And y'all, the struggle doesn't go away when we do this. We pour more time into it. Unhealthy amounts of time, 60, 70, 80 hours a week. We become more knowledgeable, we read more books, we take more continuing ed, we become more skilled, and yet the frustration still remains. It still remains. And it remains because we are trying to do with work what it was never intended to do. To give us worth and value. But y'all, your value and worth is found in being in Christ. It is found in Him. Not in what you do and not in what you produce, but in whose you are. And if you are trusting in Jesus, you are His. You are his, not because of what you produced, not because of what you created, not because of your title, but because he loves you. You are his. I mean, think about what the New Testament tells us. That God took those who were once not a people and made them a people. That God took those who were once orphans and he made them part of his family. That God took those who were rebels and sinners and he now called us friends. That is where our worth and our value and our identity come from. And when we believe this, when we know this, it changes everything, including our work. You see, Solomon, what happens is he counteracts the frustration he feels in his toil 
by finding pleasure in God, by finding pleasure in God's gifts. Now, if we were to study the book of Ecclesiastes, if we were to start in chapter 1, verse 1, and we were to read to where we are now, we would spend two chapters reading a lot of depressing words. <laughs> I actually had a woman in St. Louis come to me and ask me if I thought that Solomon was depressed the entire time he wrote this, and, you know, maybe. <laughs> Honest and true words, certainly but words that probably wouldn't make us feel good. There's not a lot of joy and pleasure and celebration in the first two chapters until the end of chapter 2 in verse 24 when Solomon says this, There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God, for apart from him who can eat or who can have enjoyment. So do you hear what he's saying we're supposed to take joy in, take pleasure in? Eating, drinking, in our toil, in our work. Think about that. Those are just the regular things of life, aren't they? The day-to-day, moment-by-moment, regular parts of our lives. Eating, drinking, working. These are the things that we find enjoyment in. Not the great and the grand, necessarily. Right? I mean, sometimes I think that's our problem. We think that we will only find joy and pleasure if we do the monumental if we invent the next new tech item that changes how people interact for the next 15 years, or we write the next great song or novel, or we have such a significant impact upon our area of work that everyone will know our name and love what we have designed. Then we'll find joy and pleasure. But think about this. Solomon, who is the king, everyone would have known his name. Solomon, who had great wealth, right, wealthier than anyone else in the land. Solomon, who is the wisest man in the, on the entire earth. Where is it that he finds joy and pleasure? Eating and drinking and working. And why? Because they are from the hand of God. That's what he says. Because they are from the hand of God. It reminds me of the 17th century monk, Brother Lawrence, who said, I turn over my little omelet in the frying pan for the love of God. Isn't that beautiful? Or more recently, Eric Little, that great Olympic runner who said, when I run, I feel God's pleasure. Or even more recently, Sidney McLaughlin, who set the world record and won gold medal in the 400-meter women's hurdles, who said, I no longer run for self-recognition, but to reflect God's perfect will. I don't deserve anything, but by grace, through faith, Jesus has given me everything. You see, the reason why we can take pleasure in a race, or in spreadsheets, or in meeting with a client, or in frying an egg, is because our toil and our work are from God. And y'all, once we see that our work and our labor is not how we determine our worth and value, but that they are gifts from God to be stewarded, then we can take joy in our work. Joy because work is a part of God's good creation. Work isn't a result of the fall. The frustration of work is a result of the fall, right? I mean, Before God created, or excuse me, before Adam and Eve rebelled against God, when God created Adam and Eve, what did he say to them? He didn't say, hey, here's your hammock and your iced tea. Just have a life of leisure. 
That's not what he said, did he? He gave Adam and Eve work to do. Name the animals, tend the garden, extend my kingdom, right? That's what he said to Adam and Eve. He gave them work. Work is not a part of the fall. Work is a part of God's good creation, and it continues to be. It continues to be. It continues to be the place where we live out what it means to be ambassadors of Jesus' kingdom. Because Paul in Colossians 1 said that all things were created through him and for him. And in everything, Christ is to be preeminent. And when Paul says all things, he means all things. Not just spiritual things that we do from 9 a.m. till noon on Sunday. All things, Christ is to be preeminent. Wherever we go and whatever we do. In our homes and in our classrooms and in our vocations. These are the arenas to display God's glory. I mean, that's what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. You see, friends, apart from God, eating is just eating. And drinking is just drinking, and work is just work, and all is vanity and striving after wind. But in him, and through him, and by him, and for him, all these things, toiling and eating, drinking and working, they are gifts from God. Opportunities for us to find pleasure and joy in him. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you have given us work to do, that you have equipped our hands to do your bidding. And whether it is in our places of vocation, whether it's as engineers or doctors, whether it's as lawyers or salesmen, whether, whether it is in our homes as we, as we care for our homes and our children, as we cut the grass and we do the various tasks you have given us, we know that all of these things are for your glory. And so we pray that you would help us to see. You would help us to know. You would help us to pursue your glory in the midst of them. So that your name would be lifted high and that we would find pleasure in you, our God and our King, who has given us good gifts. And it's in your name that we pray. And God's people said together, Amen.